I really want to thank everybody that I had a conversation with this week. I know we looked into this stuff a little bit on Tuesday night, uh, then Wednesday uh, at Bible study, um, had some conversations about our breakfast, just been talking to various people. This topic of glory that we introduced a couple weeks ago is, it has caught me personally by surprise at its significance. Um, and then the fact that it has done that hasn't caught me by surprise because that's how the Lord works, you know. You, uh, you're diligent to do whatever you're doing and you're trying to listen and trying to move forward. And then every now and then uh, you just read something in Scripture, you study something out, you see something that is, it feels so full of potential and possibility to transform it. And so I think this is one of those things. I'm going to do a little bit of a review to kind of catch us up. Uh, it feels like it was a long time ago we, we started looking at this. It was just last Friday, I think, was the first time I introduced it. So uh, we're going to go through a tiny bit of review on the concept of glory itself, uh, glance again at those definitions. And um, so tonight it's, it's like uh, the number two session on this one, glory defined and glory seen. Glory seen, okay? So what is God's glory? And where do I look to see it? That's what we're going to try to answer the questions tonight. So uh, if you remember last week, we looked at uh, some dictionary definitions. I wasn't interested in bringing those back up again. But these are uh, the Old and New Testament primary words for glory. There's a couple of other words that are translated in that vein, but really mostly it's, it's kabod in the Old Testament and doxa in the, in the New. So uh, these definitions, glory, honor, glorious, and abundance, an abundance, riches, and wealth, honor, splendor, and glory, and then honor applied in different ways. And this is something I wanted to point out a little bit. Honor as dignity. Uh, the respect that you offer somebody, the respect that somebody deserves, um, the, the, your honor kind of an idea for a magistrate or a judge or something along those lines. Honor as reputation. Reputation is one of the things that glory speaks of. Uh, fame is one of the weird components uh, that helps define the concept of glory. And that's kind of the reputation idea. Honor as reverence, honor as glory, and then glory itself in the concept of brightness or shining. And we're going to look at, uh, review a couple of scriptures that talk about that, or at least one. Uh, brightness and shining associated with the manifestation of glory. Now, uh, there's another concept to the definition of glory that I'm going to just suggest. I don't have uh, any slides supporting it, but I want to talk to you a little bit about it. Strong's talks about glory as weight. And uh, one of the good con conversations that came out this week was the Kabod idea of glory in particular has to do with heaviness. I put a post on uh, Facebook asking, you know, what do you think glory is? And Jennifer, you posted something that you guys had talked about, about uh, some nuances in the Hebrew uh, history and, and literature and culture about armor. And it has to do of its weight, the, the, the substance of it. That was really cool. And I haven't had time to dig into it the way I want, but it's, it's pretty amazing. So it's a very versatile word. What we're preoccupying ourselves with a little bit tonight is the glory of God. And we're going to look at two scriptures that do that. But um, glory, glory is associated with both who God is and what He does and how we treat Him. So one of the concepts about glory that, that I want us to start thinking in terms of is that glory is the visible or tangible manifestation of who God is. And it's manifest some in what he does. And, and, and sometimes it seems overt, like he is doing something that is glorious. Other times he is simply being him in the presence of people. And glory is the manifestation of that. And that glory isn't always, doesn't always feel like a positive thing. Um, you know, the glory that the Apostle Paul encountered on the road to Damascus was the glory of the Lord. And he didn't really have any question about who it was when he was driven to the ground. He said, uh, you know, Lord, who are you? 
uh, he was uh, not he was clueless on Jesus, but he he was recognizing that he had encountered the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh. So anyway, weight is one of those things, and then splendor is another one. And splendor is the concept of glory that is a lot of times manifest as light or shining or brightness or something like that. And it translates into cultural language and poetic language, artistic language, as the, the splendor of a sunrise or a sunset or the splendor of you know, a vista or a, a view or something along those lines. Um, grand, big, or copious, just sheer bigness is a glory concept. Grandness is a glory concept. Uh, that's why, in one reason, that's why the glory of a monarchy or the glory of a governmental situation has pomp and circumstance and stuff like that. So glory is part of that. And then we get back to the honor idea. In the New Testament, doxa is the word that is primarily used, or a couple derivatives of that. And it's the condition of being bright or shining, brightness, splendor, or radiance. Now, the reason that's the first definition in there is because the tendency in the New Testament word doxa is to speak to the brightness aspect of glory. The tendency in the Hebrew word kabod is to speak to the weighty aspect of glory. But they're both contained in it. So it's a physical phenomenon. It's of humans engaged in transcendent circumstances. And I think uh, I had the same comment up there last week. To understand that, you can think of Moses uh, and his face shining when he encountered God. And his, you know, and the, the whole situation. Plus, it would also be those that were in the tent of meeting. Uh, there's a, a number of a number of times that, that happened of humans engaged in transcendent circumstances. The description of the state of being in the next life now, participating in radiance or glory. So, have you ever heard that expression "gone to glory" when they're talking about somebody who died? And you know, it's a it's a memorial kind of expression. It's colloquial. I, I don't know where it is used around the world. I know I'm from the south. And we use it all the time. You know, that's just what people did when they died. They went to glory. And so that's kind of that definition. It's the description of the state of being in the next life now, participating in that radiance or glory, which is related pretty much to be. And then it's a reflected or a shining radiance. And the thought of that is, uh, that I think works is Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration says his clothes begin to glow, begin to radiate whiter than a fuller could make them, whiter than any kind of bleach could create. And so it was, you know, you can think of Jesus being transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. Then it's also the state of being magnificent or great. Um, if you go back and you look at some of the Old Testament stuff of the king of Persia as he was uh, coming against the various nations around there, or the, the, the glory of Nebuchadnezzar, the, these are, glory is a term that is designed to recognize and exalt the magnificence of, okay? And obviously, when that relates to God, uh, it makes sense, uh, and it feels competitive when it relates to somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. Um, The glory of Nebuchadnezzar seemed to abate when he was brought low and crawling around and letting the dew on him, and his fingernails were growing long. And then that glory seemed to be restored when he was able to stand up and recognize that Yahweh was God. So that's kind of the concept there. Honor is enhancement or recognition. Uh, this passage in 1 Timothy 1.17 just talks about Jesus, the King of glory and honor. And so glory becomes uh, a, a description of, a description of, and applied to Jesus, of course, as the King of glory, as the King of the ages, actually, is what it says. The King of the ages, full of honor and glory. That's the description of Jesus. Uh, that's what that one is. And then a transcendent or a majestic being deserving of honor. This passage in Jude talks about that uh, the foolishness of people uh, not blessing and not honoring these majestic beings, but railing against them and all of that kind of thing. So that's what that's about. So I, I don't think we have a hard time generally with the concept. I think what we are, what I, what I believe that, that the Lord's doing for us is helping us understand the immediate significance of glory, the present significance of glory, the ability to be engaged in glory ourselves. And it's completely, just so you know, changing my expectation about that and the one I've carried for the last 20 years in ministry and in life. Uh, So here are a couple of scriptures to kind of seal us up in review. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel... 
the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountain. And that sort of speaks, you can see how that speaks to the brightness idea or the light, the shining idea. So that's one uh, familiar, for most, uh, for the most part, Old Testament concept historic uh, in the, the, the history of Egypt. I mean, the history of, uh, well, that was, yeah, sort of like the history of Egypt in part, history of Israel. So brightness and light. And then this is uh, preceding or just immediately prior to the dedication of the temple. It happened that when the priests came in from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord, Solomon's temple, so that the priests could not stand to minister. Uh, because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And you see how some form of pressure, some form of weightiness is what's being talked about there. Literally, the men who were commissioned to dedicate the temple couldn't do it. They couldn't perform the sacrifice. They couldn't stand up. They couldn't make the declarations because of the weight of the presence of the Lord. And so I think all of us have perhaps, I hope anyway, experienced a little bit of something of those kind of ideas of glory where there was a a heavy presence in the Lord. I know there's been times that I've kind of got stuck on the floor or got stuck where I'm at. There's also been times where the splendor part of it, the radiance part of it, uh, see, what I fear out of those times is that we think that's all glory is. So if you have some of those those uh, experiences, we have a tendency to look for those to be repeated again and think that is glory. And I think glory is more fundamental than that. So we'll talk about that a little bit. Okay, so what is glory? And this was a scripture that meant a lot to me, and, and I, I wanted to uh, bring it back up again. Last week, the idea of glory was introduced around what Jesus said in John chapter 17, around verse 23, 24, when he said, Father, I have, uh, first of all, in 20, he says, I don't pray only for these, meaning my disciples, but from those who believe on me because of their words. And so I would venture to say that that's all of us in this room. Jesus was praying for you when he prayed this prayer. I pray for those who um, believe on me because of what the disciples wrote. Okay, So that's why I think this is a personal issue with us, a relevant issue. Then he goes on to say, Father, I have given them the glory that you gave me. And at the beginning of that prayer, he says, Father, restore to me the glory that I had with you from the foundation of the world. And I don't want to rehash that teaching so much, but I just want you to understand that literally this is a relevant issue to us. He said he had given the glory that was restored to him to you and I. So some way we possess it. Or some way he gave it to us. Okay? Then I went back and I, I, I was talking to you guys about the Habakkuk passage where Habakkuk says that it's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. He prophesied that it's the knowledge of the glory of the Lord that's going to fill the earth like um, like the waters cover the sea. And for a, a large part of my life and ministry, I didn't emphasize the knowledge. I was looking for the glory of the Lord to come and fill the earth as some future prophetic event. But it was because I wasn't reading slowly, I wasn't paying attention, and I it, it wasn't really even just that. It wasn't like a dyslexic deficit or anything. It was that I didn't see glory as something that was already released, that was already in me. I didn't really understand how to look for it. And I grew up from a a Baptist to uh, Assemblies of God into the vineyard. And on that journey, I know that I developed a habit and sort of the mindset of glory being an invasive event, very positive, very desirable, but an invasive event where we would gather and we worship and glory would come, or we would be praying for one another or praying for somebody to be healed, and we we would want glory to come in some form or another. And sometimes things happened, uh, gold dust. I remember an instance when we were back, Kevin, at uh, one thing. And it was crazy. I mean, this guy was just, he looked like uh, one of those uh, models, kind of the blue man group, only gold. And said it was, you know, I mean, it was, it was amazing. I mean, there's no question it's a miraculous situation. And I'm not saying that wasn't a manifestation of glory. I'm saying the negative to something like that for me was I started characterizing the glory that I was seeking and looking for as those special invasive experiences. And I don't think that's what, what God wants. So 
This was a scripture that, that uh, helped explain what the detail was that Habakkuk was speaking about, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is what's going to be poured out. And so then I started assuming, okay, Lord, then your glory probably is here. And it says, in the year that King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Now, there's no question that that's a glorious kind of prophetic image, insight into heaven, right? You've got angels there. You've got the Lord there. You've got his robe uh, filling the temple and so on and so forth. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, as of last Friday, when I was talking to you about this, I thought I had done a good job expressing and somewhat exhausting the reality that we need to shift our thinking and realize that the glory of the Lord is somehow already here. Somehow already here. Now, I still thought of it as a descending, invasive gift. Some kind of elixir or atmosphere or presence, but that it's already here. And I'm okay with that because I think I took a big step forward. But I learned earlier in the week that that was just as wrong as the other um, immature views of glory that I had carried for 20 years. And I'm going to talk to you tonight about that a little bit, and that's kind of the point. The whole earth is full of His glory. All right. So what exactly is the glory that this Scripture seems to say the whole earth is full of? And that's what tripped me up. Because as powerful a declaration, as holy and spiritual a scene as this is, this says absolutely nothing about what the glory is. Can you see that? If this was the only scripture, this translation was the only translation, you wouldn't have any more idea. You'd still be left to make up what glory is on your own and assume that it's covering the earth. Then you could say, well, it makes sense that Habakkuk said that in, the, in those days coming, that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord is going to become, because we're still looking for that, because I got no idea what it is. You know, it could be here. I can't recognize it. All right? But all hope is not lost. This is Young's literal translation of Isaiah 6.3, same verse we just looked at. Now, I didn't come at this from Young's, although I appreciate that on Tuesday night, Jen, you asked, hey, what about that literal guy? <laughs> you know, that, it was awesome. So read this and think about it. And let me back up and read verse 3 in the New American Standard which is pretty much characteristic of most modern translations. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Here is how it's rendered in uh, Young's literal. And this one hath called unto that and hath said, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The fullness of of all the earth is his glory. Do you see the difference in those two verses? Can you see the difference in the revelation? If we were to ask the question, what is the glory of the Lord on the New American Standard declaration about the glory filling the earth, you'd have to say, I don't know. You'd have to draw your definition from somewhere else. If I ask you now, what is the glory of the Lord, what would you say? Somebody shout it out. The fullness of all the earth. earth. Okay, now, uh, I was giving this guy the wrong name. I was calling him, uh, I don't know what I was calling him. Anyway, his his name is Robert Alter. I was calling him Altman. so I've got this study Bible, uh, of the Hebrew study Bible, and this is pretty much this guy's life work, he's a Hebrew scholar. And it's, it's called the uh, one up on top there, the Hebrew Bible Translation with Commentary by Robert Alter. And I looked at his translation of this verse, and it parallels almost exactly Young's literal. 
And each called out to each and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. The fullness of all the earth is his glory. And then on Wednesday at one of the studies, I had somebody ask me, well, which translation do you think is right? And I will be honest with you, uh, not being a Hebrew scholar, I can't, I don't have the, the grammatic insight to do this myself, but I am putting my trust in these two translations. One, I've had tremendous luck trusting Young's Literal on simple word phraseology. This, uh, Robert Alter devoted his life to teaching and translating the Hebrew Bible. And he's very particular about preserving the Hebrew. One of the things in, in his introduction to his Bible is he says, if you're not terribly careful because of the, the, the syntax and the structure and the cultural differences, you don't have very much Hebrew thought left in an English translation. So his mission in life, the gift that God gave him and the calling God put on his life, is to do this. So, I believe that that is, in fact, what it says. Now, I think that changes everything. I don't know if it seems that way to you, but it changes everything. So now, like you said a minute ago, because you guys are quick learners, what is the glory of the Lord? It's the fullness of the earth. So remember our first questions. What is the glory of the Lord? What is glory? Well, it is the fullness of the earth. Now, this is a, a, a challenging thought because we're not used to assigning as a primary revelation and a primary manifestation the definition of glory to us or to creation or to the earth. But I want you to consider that that's what the Scripture says. Yes? Are you going to talk about... I should turn myself up. Yes. Are you going to talk about fullness? The fullness? Uh, not probably in detail tonight. Okay. okay. But, but we will. Uh, this is not something that it, it, it's a, you know, uh, a, a, a once and, and a goodbye. Because I understand that this, I mean, is this, if this, as you're perceiving this, is this a fairly substantial change in your thinking about glory? Yeah, I think so. I think so. And that's a very good question. So we're going to get to it in a tiny bit. Uh, I mean, what is the fullness? You know, what is the fullness? So this rendering identifies, even if we may not understand the depth of it and we don't have all the details yet, it identifies what glory is. Not just what glory is, what the glory of the Lord is. The Lord takes glory. Now, there's a couple of scriptures, and I don't have time to, to, I didn't have time to put them on slide, but you know, there's a scripture that says the glory of a woman is her hair. Uh, there is another scripture that says the glory of youth is their strength. And there's another scripture that talks about the glory of a kingdom is its chariots and its horses. There's a lot of stuff, about it, but it makes perfect sense this way. The outward expression that you can see, like the strength of a young man, is the glory of his youth. The outward expression of a, a woman's hair is the glory of her, especially if you go back into medical and cultural issues about what the hair was there for and why it was covered and all that sort of stuff. So Isaiah 6.3, properly translated, identifies the glory of the Lord as the fullness of all the earth. Now, why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it when you think about it? We don't, we don't know it does because we haven't ever thought about it. But when God made the creation and the earth, he said, wow, this is good. And he's never rescinded that. You can't find anything after the fall where God goes, oh, now the earth is terrible. It's not there. He doesn't forget reality. He is reality. He knows that when the earth manifests that fullness, now, the glory of the Lord is the fullness of the earth. The earth includes the dirt. It includes the systems. It includes plants and animals, right? It includes you and I. And when God made man, he didn't just say it was good. He says, very good. And he's never rescinded that. Now, some would say, oh, yeah, he's called man all kinds of negative things. Yes. And when the angels made an announcement at the coming of the birth of Jesus, 
before a single man had repented, before a single man or woman had followed the Lord, the declaration that Linus made, the declaration that Linus read in the Charlie Brown's Christmas is peace on earth, goodwill to men with whom God is well pleased. Now, I did know that. I did read that slowly, and it did shock the pants off of me. This tells us what the glory of the Lord is. So the future knowledge of the glory of the Lord that talks about this says that not only is the glory here in the earth and here in the people of the earth and here in the systems and beauty of the earth, but that what's coming as a, as a sense of uh, prophetic outpouring and, re- and revival is the knowledge of that glory. Now, I thought this verse meant that the ignorance that I had in knowing what the glory was was going to be uh, somehow illuminated and I was going to understand what the glory was and that was what he was prophesying. Now I know that it's the fact that I don't look for glory in the fullness of the world, the fullness of the earth. It's right in front of me but I don't give it the credit it deserves. And we're being called to change that. This is why this feels very, very significant to me. Because if there there are a handful of really significant concepts upon which the gospel is built. And to have one of them, glory, which I'll show you in a moment, to have the wrong total picture of it, or to be completely ignorant of it, is, a, is not a good thing. Not if you really want to understand what's going on with the gospel. Okay. Isaiah chapter 11. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. This is, again, another powerful prophetic image of, of the restored earth, of the new time, of the new, you know, so on. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now I thought Habakkuk was the first and I'm not all certain about the timelines and everything, but this passage of Scripture is a very significant prophetic passage and it concludes with the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Now, if you reflect back on the Exodus passage I talked about and the King's passage I talked about, the glory was not something independent of the actual presence of the Lord. The Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai. That's why glory was there. The Lord came into Solomon's temple. That's why the weight of his presence was so much the guys couldn't do it. Again, I spent the majority of my professional and personal Christian life looking for glory as an invasive external thing that was fun when it came. I allowed myself to separate the glory of God from God himself. And that's what I think we're being called to realize is a terrible mistake. Now, So I thought this was pretty cool. I want to read to you the overall context of this because, you know, I'm sitting here telling you I think it's significant and you might be going, well, yeah, it seems kind of significant, but you're making a big deal out of it. Let me just read chapter 11 down to where it says this. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from the root will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what he sees nor make decisions by what he hears. Let me stop there for a second. So, the shoot that will spring from the stem of Jesse is Jesus, correct? Jesus is the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan. He is the the invasive one that came down from heaven. To be with us. And he brought glory. He was in glory, even though he had laid aside something of that personal manifestation 
to come and walk among us. Look at what it says. This is also the place where, where the, the seven spirits of God, uh, people pull their definition from here. Shame on me and shame on you. If we think about that as some independent spiritual interface that is not Jesus himself. Because when you go to the other seven spirits of God in Revelations, it's about Jesus. The seven eyes that go out into all the world. Where? Out into all the world. So the point of the Spirit of God and all these independent understandings and manifestations is the glory of God in a sense. And I don't, I'm, I'm talking over my pay grade right now, but it is the glory of the fullness of the earth. Check it out in Revelation. Check it out in Revelation about that. All right, let me keep going. Though This is awesome. Uh, but with righteousness, he will judge the poor and decide with fairness the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt around his loins and faithfulness the belt around his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them and a cow and a bear will graze together. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. And the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. There they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is probably one of the most poetic and most frequently quoted prophecies about the kingdom being on the earth, the fulfillment of thy kingdom come that will be done on the earth. All the image about the ox lying down with the lamb, all that kind of stuff. It's all about the glory that is in the fullness of the earth. It's not an invasive thing about how shiny God is. It's the transformation into the reality of the created purpose of all of these things. That's the larger context. Now, let's jump into the New Testament for a second. Galatians is when Paul is talking about his own conversion. I mentioned to you in, uh, in, in uh, the road to Damascus. But when God, who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. So there's two or three points I want to try to get across to you, and, and, and uh, God help me and give us mercy. This was Paul's conversion experience. This was the basis upon which he began to understand the message of the gospel that he uh, authored in Scripture in so many places and became really the primary herald for. Okay? Now, it wasn't, this isn't when he started loving God or following God. It isn't when he started uh, being religious. This is when he began to understand what God had done to redeem mankind. Because he did it and revealed it in Paul to be revealed. Look what he says. When it pleased, when, when, when through his grace, because he'd been called for a long time, right? And we, we uh, had a question at the end of the service last week. Well, isn't this just talking about people who, who are uh, already Christians or who have already made that? No, no. Paul says that he was called, even from his, set apart even from his mother's womb, before he ever acknowledged the validity of Jesus. He called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son where? In him. Paul did not invite Jesus into him on the road to Damascus. Paul discovered that to his blindness, ignorance, and silliness, Jesus was already there. That's big. Then, okay, now I want to talk to you with no condemnation but about the difficulty that we have with this concept uh, because we think in terms of separation. We think in terms of God being out there, us being here, salvation is something that comes at us, God being out there, glory coming as an invasive thing outside of us. Therefore, almost all translations end up translating the word ain, the Greek word ain, two separate ways in one sentence here. 
to reveal his son in me, Ain Imoy. Imoy means me. So that I might preach him, Ain Ethnos. Now, I don't actually get, and, and I can't do justice to the teaching tonight, but I've begun to study all the uses of the word among and in, and there's a lot of them, so it's a lot of study. There are several other words, ace, um, ek, all kinds of words, para, that mean among, and they're used pretty frequently in the New Testament about uh, people that are a part of a group. Ain literally means in. Just like Paul said, Now, there are some translations that say when it pleased, uh, through His grace, when it pleased God to reveal His Son to me, I'm telling you, run from that translation. That is not the truth. That is not what is on the page. It's ain, in, in. And so there's no justification in my mind anymore for translating ain, ethnos, as among. What it is, is that the concept of the gospel eluded our theology, and it eluded our translations. We can't envision that what Paul realized and was declaring, and the reason that he didn't go back, and the reason he was able to to, to get those dreams to go to Mesopotamia and to Troas and those various places, was because God had showed him You were blind to this, but I am in you. And I am in them. So go and declare that. Okay? Go and declare that. Now, this is the Mirror Bible. It's the only one I could find, because I understand that Francis de Troyes understands this. He understands this concept. I'm running out of time here. This is the heart of the Gospel that I proclaim. It began, listen to this and tell me, you know, if you, if you can have, have room to, to hear his translation. This is the heart of the gospel that I proclaim. It began with an unveiling of his son in me, in Imoy, freeing me to announce the same sonship in the masses of non-Jewish people. Ain ethnos. Now, he expanded ethnos not just to mean Gentiles in a narrow definition, but in everybody that wasn't a Jew. This is the turning point. Now, in Acts, if you remember, when Peter was called to go to Cornelius' house, Cornelius did not respond to what Peter preached, although Peter was diligently preaching. That sermon was interrupted by a manifestation of the Holy Spirit coming out of Cornelius and the people in his house. Because... God was in them and brought Peter there to witness it, not make it happen. That's what this is. That's what we're doing. Now, Jesus said in John um, 17, Father, I have put the glory that you gave me into them, and he gave three reasons why. So they will be one as you and I are one, And so the world will know that you sent me. The world learned that God had sent Jesus to dwell in them by his Spirit through Paul and the mass of non-Jewish people. Let me me read that. Let me read his notes on this passage. The Greek text is quite clear. It pleased the Father to reveal His Son in me in order that I may proclaim Him in the nations. The word en emoi, translated in me, and en, or en, ethnios, ethnios, translated as the Gentile nations or the masses of Jewish people. Not among the Gentiles, as most translations have it. Later, when Barnabas is sent to investigate the conversion of the Greeks, In Acts 11, instead of reporting his findings to the headquarters in Jerusalem, he immediately finds Paul, knowing that Paul's gospel is the revelation of the mystery of Christ in in the nations. No wonder, then, that those believers were the first to be called 
little Christians, or Christ-likes. That's where it happened in Antioch. Jesus confirms that the Son of Man is born, is the Son of God. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one Father who is in heaven. He said that to a group of people before anybody ever converted, before anybody ever had a chance to say this in a prayer, before anybody ever had a chance to fall. That was his go-to message declaring that the kingdom of God has come, is at hand, and is within you. And I know this requires a shift in our thinking, but most of us in this room have an easier time by faith believing that God created everything out of nothing than we do that when Jesus came, he really engaged in us. Ain is a big word, and I'm going to help us understand it at some point. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, it says that he came, and it's translated among in most translations, but it says he dwelt in us in the prologue to John. Uh, Anyway, there's a lot more here. I'll read those notes at another time. All right, so this is the second big Pauline verse talking about the gospel and what he knew. This is in Colossians, okay? Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh, in my flesh. And the only reason I've got all these references, I want you to see how common this inward is and it's in most of the time unless the person translating it or teaching it or whatever is struggling to see the simplicity and magnitude that Christ is really in some place. So then they use words like with and among. Okay. Uh, in my flesh, I do sh- uh, my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is, the mystery which has been hidden from past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. This is the first half of the, this Colossians verse I'm going to look at. If you can see there, I know the contrast is not too much, but you kind of see it. I grayed out some of those areas that are grayed out in the New American Standard. Usually what that means when they do that or they italicize it, it means there's not a word there for Greek. They're adding those for clarity. Clarity of what? Clarity of what we think it's supposed to say. What if we just take a look at what it actually says? Okay? All that goes away. And if you look at an interlineal, there's only about 10 or 11 words that take the place of all those. And this is what they are. Well, I'll let Holly take a picture first. Now I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh, and te sarkima, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation or the administration of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Not fulfill the preaching of the word of God. The fulfilling of the preaching of the word of God is me standing up here, you sitting there, there's a gap between us. I'm the one talking. You're the one listening. Bless you. That is not what this is talking about. This is talking about carrying the Word of God, which is Jesus Christ, and the recognition of His presence in the Gentiles that Paul was going to go see when he saw Lydia on the stream bed in Philippi, on the stream bank on Philippi, or when he saw these, the, the, other people in Ephesus and the various places, the man in Troas, to fulfill the Word of God. I preach it. Go there and declare to them, Christ is in you. What is that Word of God? It's the mystery. It's the mystery. Not that is the mystery. It's the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and generations, not just past, all of them, the ages and generations, but now has been manifest to his saints. Here's the rest of that verse. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. And there it is again, among the Gentiles. Ain, ethnos. Why not in the Gentiles? Why not in the Gentiles? It wasn't ever a mystery that, that the good news about Yahweh couldn't be shared. It was shared with the Syrians. It was shared with the woman, right? Uh, with the oil and the dead son by the prophet. It's not new news. This is new news. Not that somebody could travel out of Israel 
and declare to a widow that her son would raise from the dead. That's what Elijah did. The news is God, Yahweh himself, who is Yeshua, is now in you. In ethnos, which is Christ in you and who mean the hope of glory. Of course, it's the hope of glory. There's glory everywhere God is. There's glory everywhere God is. <sighs> we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom. In Pasi Sophia, it's just there, that's in. They translated it with. Why? Because we don't understand that the gospel, the redemptive plan of God, is built on relationship, intimacy, togetherness, inness. And, and God is beginning to turn our hearts worldwide to this reality. And I think I'm just privileged to be able to even begin to see it. So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Right? Teleon, uh, perfect or complete, in Christo. It's not complicated. I'm not a Greek scholar either, but I don't have trouble with this one. And I understand why we do, though, because it's making a bold declaration about the presence of the Lord before it satisfies what we think the gospel is conditional upon, which is us making a decision, saying a prayer, responding, repenting, or doing some other transactional, conditional thing. I'm sorry if that makes you nervous, made me nervous. But at least consider what it says and, and determine... We have to determine if our allegiance is to the truth or to what we've thought and what we've been taught. Now, if this is not true, I'll do my best to get out of the deception. But I feel like this is true. And I'm going to do my best to get out of the deception and to bring you with me. Because to deny the reality and the effectiveness of Christ's work in the incarnation, the cross, death, and resurrection is to rob God of the centerpiece of his redemptive plan. And no wonder our evangelism is so feckless. Because we don't look for glory in the people. We look for sin. All right. Hold on to it for a bit, Ronnie. Uh, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor and striving according to his power, which mightily in dunamay, they don't even put an in in there, works within me. Why within? The word is ain, emoi. The same one that's up there where Christ says, why didn't they translate, which is Christ with you? Well, because ain means in, and they saw that was important. But down here, the mighty dunamis power in me that's working to do this apparently is only really with me. We're conditioned to not recognize Christ in us, the hope of glory. Eddie, you mentioned it the first night we talked about it. This thing is growing in leaps and bounds in the simplicity of him in us. Okay. Got it? Okay. Uh, let me ask these last two questions in Europe. What is the glory of God? If we, if we let uh, Young's Literal or, or Alton, uh, Alter's translation, it's the fullness of all the earth is His glory. However awkward that feels to assign, I think we have to try. Question two, where do I look to see it? The glory of this mystery is in the mass of non-Jewish people, and in the Jews. It's covering the earth. It's filling the earth. Christ in us, in you, in me, in our neighbor, in those guys, uh, Isaac, that are planning to butcher a bunch of Christians in Christmas. We've got to deal with this somehow. It's either that or the gospel stays in our own parameters and definition. And I, I can't personally let that happen. I can't make you think a certain way, but I'm... I'm going to go with Jesus on this. <laughs> I'm going to go with the Holy Spirit and the revelation that the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. 
I don't fully know what it means. I don't know how to process it. I don't know what to do. I do know that it is amazing, wonderful, and filled with hope. And it will change because Jesus gave the glory to the disciples so that they could be one. We're not displaying oneness very well with 41,000 denominations. And so the world would know. The world would know that the Father sent the Son. That's the fruit of recognizing glory in each other. Okay? All right. Real quick run. Sorry, I used the whole time. So for those of you that are new to us in Joyland, welcome to the fun. It's a new way of looking at Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. And it's a, it, it actually totally changed how I look at everything. What I'm learning is we started talking about glory. We ended up back with Christ in me or Christ in that other person that may or may not have said a prayer. And that was really shocking to me, the fact that they maybe didn't say a prayer, but Christ was still in them already. And that bothered me at first. And then I asked myself, why does that bother me? And I worked it out. So just like when you have a car that's a Toyota Prius, all of a sudden you now see them everywhere. Whereas before they were here and there. But when you start to look for Christ in us, it starts to show up everywhere in the scripture stuff. So it's already starting to show up when we're talking about glory. I didn't think we were going to end up this place, but we're already coming back to it again. So I would encourage you or sometimes challenge you to consider that the way you've been thinking, if it's different than Christ is in everybody, that means all people, that maybe there's some validity to it and start to look at the stuff a little bit different than what you may have before and see if it opens up revelation and scripture and life when you read the word to you. It's weird, but it's fun. Praise God. Yeah, I, I just encourage you to, I mean, I, I don't expect anybody to make a shift right now. It's, it's, it's too soon. It's too much. It's too much for me. But I can see what the word says. I can see what's in there. And I can begin to understand the, the ramifications of this. So we're going to stay with it until we try to understand it. We're going to stay with it until we try to understand it. Um, all right. It's time for us to switch over to worship.